If you're one here that has not been raptured by our children's ministry, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. The book of Hebrews chapter 8. All the way to the end of your Bible. Go to Revelation and just go to your left. You'll find it just a few books to the left. If you're not used to handling your Bible, you'll find those big numbers of the chapters, the small numbers of the verses. We're going to be in big number 8. We're going to be again in small number chapter 6 here in just a moment. For all of us, life and society is run in some regard on covenants, oaths being made. This is true for many of you in here. You were married, you made covenants, you've made promises. And yet we know from living with fellow sinners in our homes that the keeping of those covenants is not so easy. We do it imperfectly. The things that we swore to do, we regularly fail to do and we seek forgiveness. Some of you have been wounded by covenants so broken that relationships, perhaps marriages, have been severed. And you bear the wounds of those. And you know and your, your experience has told you to, to doubt the faithfulness and trustworthiness of others. Friend, I hope that today will be an encouragement to you as we consider God's covenant to you in Christ. Politicians make oaths when they take office. And yet, how many times on the news or in other places have we seen oaths broken? The very oaths and promises that were made quickly broken out of the sake of political expediency. No, experience has told us not to trust anybody who makes such an oath. As quickly as they're made, they're broken. We're a skeptical society, and rightly so. Even pastors that we have trusted, we see them in the news, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Perhaps some of you have been in a church where a pastor has failed. He's taken certain oaths to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful in shepherding the church, to be faithful in living out the covenant of that church in holiness and godliness as he aims to grow with the rest of the saints, and yet disqualifies himself from hidden sin. Those oaths were broken. No, we live in a world full of broken oaths and broken covenants, don't we? Even as we measure ourselves against our own church covenant, those promises from Scripture that we repeat to one another as we aim to be faithful, to love, encourage, and guard one another with the gospel, how often do we measure ourselves against those and go... Not so much. Even in our study in covenant theology, whether the covenant of works or Noah, whether with Abraham or with Israel or David, how often as we've seen, as soon as a covenant is made, a covenant is broken. Such is the case with sinners, isn't it? And yet how remarkable is it that even in spite of our sin, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That though we might not trust the oaths and the covenants of men, we can trust God's covenant because we can trust Christ. He has never done us wrong. He has never reneged on his promises. No, indeed, every single one of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. And though every single one of us might in some way be shy or hesitant to trust the oaths and the promises of those around us, I hope that today, when we consider the new covenant of grace in Christ, 
that our Lord would bring each one of us into a deeper and more abiding trust in him. Not questioning his word, not doubting his goodness, but of resting in it all the more. So with that in mind, would you read with me and stand for the reading of God's holy word, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, or they shall not, yeah, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Boy, I really wrestled all week with how to preach this sermon. I mean, how do you preach about God's eternal plan of salvation in Jesus Christ in one sermon? That's a whole Bible sermon. So rather than bounce around to different passages, and for the sake of those who are serving our families and the children's ministry, I just want to focus on one passage that we just read from Hebrews chapter 8. Now, this one passage that we just read isn't going to tell us everything that we can know about the glory of the new covenant. No, there's so much more to know and unfold and uncover and enjoy. But what it does do is it introduces us to everything that we need to know so that we might rightly understand God's new covenant of grace. And over the course of this sermon, I want us to consider a couple of things. I want us to consider, first of all, the context of the covenant the context of the covenant. And then secondly, I want us to consider the character of the covenant. So really my only two points today, the context of the covenant and the character of the covenant. And here in this first point, we're just going to veer wide of Hebrews 8 for just a few minutes as we consider and zoom out to consider the, the wider context of, of this new covenant of grace. But I want you to consider three things concerning the character of the covenant. We are going to consider, first of all, a broken covenant of works, secondly, a promised covenant of grace, and thirdly, an eternal covenant of redemption. And all of these three things, really all I'm going to do is I'm just going to rehash from 30,000 feet high the previous six sermons that I've preached. 
that all of it provides the context for what we're studying now. No big deal. Easy peasy. Or to put it more simply, what we're going to consider in the context of the covenant is condemnation, revelation, foundation. That we have in the covenant of works our condemnation. That we have in the covenant of grace ongoing revelation of God's plan in Christ. And then we have that covenant's foundation. That is the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son in eternity past. Let's consider each one of those. Consider first of all our condemnation. Our broken covenant of works. We learn that Adam was created in the image and likeness of God, and he was given dominion over the earth. And as God's appointed representative for humankind, he was then called to live by faith and to obey God's command. And if he did, then he would enter into God's rest as a reward, earning God's rest for all that were in him, for all of his progeny. His mission was to fill the earth with the glory of God. Or as one person put it, quote, to be the divinely appointed gardener who would turn the whole earth into a garden. But Adam failed. Remember that? That instead of reflecting God's image, Adam rebelled against God's word. He broke God's covenant and he plunged God's world into sin. And so sin came into the world through one man and death spread to all men because of his one trespass. That is, that the guilt of one man was imputed to all men, transferred to their account, so to speak. That when Adam jumped off sides, the entire team was penalized. And so all men are therefore, according to the scriptures, born in sin, brought forth in iniquity. That we are by nature children of wrath. That even though Adam was created to have dominion over the world, now because of his one trespass, the entire world is under the dominion of sin and death. Friends, you realize what this means for us, don't you? This is the way of the world. All men everywhere, apart from the regenerating grace of God in Christ, are dead in their trespasses and sins. There is none righteous, no, not one. That is that in Adam, none of us is better or better off than anybody else. Because by nature, we are dead in Adam, even when compared to who we might consider to be the greatest of sinners. None of us is better, and none of us is better off apart from the grace of God. And that's because in Adam, we have a terrible record. We have a legal problem, and we've got a bad heart. And so from this sin nature, we've not only had Adam's condemnation imputed to us, but we have received his very corrupted nature. And it's from that nature that comes every sinful action. And every sinful action is no less than moral rebellion against the God who created us. And what do we read? Well, the scriptures tell us that the wages of that sin is death. Both in this life and for eternity in hell. Indeed, Beloved, God is good to judge us outside of Christ. So the problem with sin isn't ultimately a nurture issue. It's not something that is shaped in us over time by external influences. The home that you grew up in, the culture that you've been a part of, that may give some shape to it. But you and I are not ultimately, according to Jesus' words, made unclean by that which is outside of us. No, it's that which comes from within, from the heart that tells us who we really are. 
our upbringings, our culture, and many other things may shape the way that comes out, but it is by no means the source of it. The source of all of our sin is this corrupted nature that we've inherited from Adam. We are by nature children of wrath, or to put it another way, children under wrath. And it's revealed in our sinfulness and in our desire apart from Christ to know, love, obey, or follow God. No, in fact, we suppress his very knowledge in rebellion. And so sin then affects every single part of us. So dominating our minds and our hearts and our wills and our consciences that the Bible says that we are enslaved to it. It has dominion over us. It is our master. And so to put it another way, the broken covenant of works is like stage four metastatic cancer that has spread to every part of Adam's collective body. It is humanity's death sentence. And no matter how many ways we try to treat it, you and I in our own strength cannot cure it. We have no intrinsic righteousness. We have no intrinsic goodness. We have no present hope and we have no future hope. We are dead in Adam, condemned according to God's law. We are dead men and women walking. But it's against this bleak backdrop of humanity's condemnation, against this dark cloud of the broken covenant of works, that a pinprick of gospel light shone through in the form of a promise to Adam. The first revelation of God's covenant of grace. We looked at this several weeks ago. That is, that a holy serpent crushing seed would come from Eve. He'd be a true and a better Adam. That Adam's disobedience led to many becoming sinners. And the Bible says, but by his obedience, the obedience of this better Adam, will Adam's holy seed, will many be made righteous. And so the promise of covenant of grace is then unfolded, beginning there in Genesis 3 across the Old Testament, alongside and within the historic covenants with Israel, kind of like the bloom of a flower gradually unfolding across the Old Testament. Each one of the subsequent revelations of the covenant of grace shows us more about the identity of this promised seed, who he is, what he'll be like, and what he will do. So we just talked about the covenant of work shows us humanity's condemnation in Adam and of our own personal need for imputed righteousness. It reveals our need for the woman's seed, a better Adam who will perfectly obey God, crush Satan, sin and death forever, and then bring his family into God's Sabbath rest for eternity. The Noahic covenant shows us our need for Noah's seed. That is a better Noah who brings his family safely through God's cataclysmic judgment into a new creation. The Abrahamic covenant shows our need for Abraham's seed. The true Israel who mediates God's promised blessings to the nations. The Mosaic covenant reveals our need for Israel's seed. That is the better priest whose propitiating blood establishes a better covenant based on better promises by which we can now draw near to God in confidence with purified consciences. The Davidic covenant reveals our need for David's seed, the better Solomon, the better Shalom man, the better prince of peace who embodies God's law, subdues God's enemies, builds God's temple, the church, and reigns forever on David's throne in justice and righteousness. Step by step, 
And all of these historic covenants with Adam and Noah, with Abraham and Israel and David, and in all of the surrounding types and shadows in Melchizedek and the Exodus and in manna from heaven and in Israel's priestly ministry and many, many, many more. Step by step, God revealed the good news of Christ and of the new covenant. Friends, let me ask you this. If God can across ages prove his faithfulness in such a way, so intrinsically bringing about his perfect purposes, even through sinners, such that he would bring us to be united to Christ in faith, can you not trust him with even the most minute details of your life? Can you not trust him in all of the ways that he has saved you, but also in the ways that he will keep you? Has he come so far to bring you, his beloved, into his covenant that he would now, in a fit of forgetfulness or of a changing of his mind, cast you off? Friend, the deliberate and progressive revelation of God's promise of grace all the way across redemptive history, of his providential bringing about of all of his purposes in Christ, of the saving of every saint from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David and more, testifies to the trustworthiness of our God. That even when you and I are faithless, <laughs> like Noah, like Abraham, like David, and like every other saint who has ever lived, God remains faithful. Amen? Amen? Because he cannot deny himself. And he has promised a covenant. But all of these unfolding promises, all across the Old Testament, unfolding as it were like a flower, were merely the revelation of God's eternal covenant of redemption. You remember, it's that intra-Trinitarian agreement between God the Father and God the Son in which the Father promised to give the Son a people, that He would be the Redeemer of the elect, and the Son then promised to voluntarily assume humanity, to become incarnate in order to live and die in the place of every one of those whom the Father has given Him such that he will not lose one. Let me break that down a little bit more for you. The covenant of redemption was a covenant of works between the Father and the Son, in which the Son willingly obeys the Father and merits salvation for every one of God's elect. And the covenant of grace then is just that. It is a covenant between God and the elect in which Christ freely gives all of the blessings and the benefits of the salvation that he earned according to the covenant of redemption. In other words, Christ merited our salvation by his obedience in the covenant of redemption. And we now freely receive that merited salvation by faith in the covenant of grace. The whole Bible is the tracing of this great covenant and promissory form in the Old Testament and of its fulfillment in Christ in history in the new covenant. 
To borrow the Apostle Peter's words, you and I were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last days for you. That's a really helpful way to think about the relationship between that eternal covenant redemption and the promised covenant of grace. What was eternally foreknown has been historically revealed. Step by step. In the Old Testament as a promise. Then finally, in these last days by Christ in the new covenant. All three of these biblical covenants, that is of works and of grace and redemption, all form the theological context, not only for each historical covenant that we've explored in the previous weeks, but especially for the new covenant of grace. That's why the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, covenant of works, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, covenant of grace, the many will be made righteous. Beloved, I've reminded you of this before, but I want to encourage you again. You and I often have a flawed view on a day-by-day -day basis of the Father's love for us. If I were to ask any one of you on a given day, especially on your bad days, what you think the Father's face looks like towards you? Some of you might reply, he looks angry or there's consternation. Some of you might even be tempted to say with the psalmist that, that the Lord seems to have turned his face away. We have this image of Christ Standing firm in front of us, holding back a fury-filled father on the basis of his own blood. But beloved, let me remind you, as I've reminded you before, that the father does not love you because Christ died for you. Christ died for you because from eternity past, God has loved you. That he has loved you from before the foundation of the world. That he has chosen you in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. In love you have been predestined, the Apostle Paul says. Don't ever question the love of God for you again. And in those moments when you are, when Satan whispers in your ear, God doesn't love you. He couldn't possibly love you. If you were left to relate to God by his laws, a covenant of works, amen. But you don't. You relate to God and draw near in confidence in Christ because you're in his covenant of grace. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Allows you to draw near. And it assures you of God's love for you. For this is love, not that we loved God, but what? He loved us. How do we know? Because he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Amen? That is the gospel. So let's do away with any idea that behind the Lord Jesus Christ is some sinister God of the Old Testament just waiting to wail on you if Jesus ever gets out of the way. That is not the gospel, and that is not our God of covenant. He loves you 
in Christ. That is the context of the covenant. Of condemnation in the covenant of works. Of revelation step by step of the covenant of grace. And of its foundation in the covenant of redemption. We've just considered all of those from a wide-angled lens. I've just walked you through the last six weeks. Say, what did you preach six weeks for? I don't know. It took me six weeks to get there, to figure it out. But now let's zoom in on our passage, Hebrews chapter 8. Beginning in verse 6 and going through the end of the chapter, at least six things are going to stand out. Six qualities or characteristics of the new covenant. We're going to see in the first half of verse 6, the covenant's pioneer. Then in verses 6 and verse 7, we're going to... Those two verses are going to make obvious the covenant's perfection. Verses 8 and 9 then are going to show us the covenant's prediction. Then in verses 10 to 12, they're going to reveal the covenant's people and the covenant's provisions. Finally, in the last verse of chapter, that is verse 13, we're going to wrap it up with the covenant's permanence. Lots of P's. I tell you before, you know you got the ghost when you alliterate like that. Pioneer. Perfection, prediction, people, provision, permanence. <laughs> Woo! I could be done right now. Let's keep going. Look at verse 6. Consider with me the covenant's pioneer. It says here that Christ has obtained a better ministry. Recall how Adam was created by God and placed in God's garden sanctuary to mediate God's glory in the world as God's prophet, king, and priest. That's what we studied a few weeks ago. And then later on in Mount Sinai, God created Israel just as he created Adam as a kind of corporate Adam. And then he placed them in the promised land in the same way that he placed Adam in the garden so that they would mediate God's glory to the nations as God's prophet, priest, and king. Adam failed in his ministry as mediator because he broke the covenant of works. Likewise, Israel failed in their ministry by breaking the old covenant. But now Christ, according to verse 6, as the last Adam and as the true Israel has obtained, it says here, a more excellent ministry as God's final prophet, his exalted king, and his perfect priest. That threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, is succinctly illustrated in the opening sentences of this letter. Keep your finger here at chapter 8, and I want you to go back to chapter 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Verses 1 and 2. Notice here that God formerly spoke through the prophets, but now it says he has spoken to us through his son. It says here that he upholds all things by his word. Jesus is God's final prophet. But also in verse 2, notice that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. And then down in verse 4, he has sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Not only is Jesus God's final prophet, but he is God's exalted king. Finally, in verse 3, the grounds for Jesus' kingly exaltation was his priestly humiliation. That he made purifications for sins. 
He is God's final prophet. He is God's exalted king. And he is God's perfect priest. And so in a sense, the entire letter of Hebrews is an exposition on this mediating work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last Adam, the better Moses, the true Israel, through whom we now enter into God's rest because of his blood. So, listen to this. This is how the Second Line of Confession eloquently summarizes the Bible's teaching on Christ's mediating ministry. It says, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both. Does that make sense? Remember that? It's covenant of redemption. To be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king. Head and Savior of the church, heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be a seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And so here we have, at the beginning of verse 6, a better ministry by the covenant's pioneer, the covenant head, our Lord Jesus Christ. That in this threefold office of mediator, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ alone has merited full salvation for all who would receive him by faith. That's why the writer asserts that the covenant he mediates is better. Look at verse 6 again. It is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better because it's enacted on better promises. Because if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. When the writer assigns fault to the old covenant in verse 7, he's not saying that the old covenant was inherently bad, but that it was insufficient. What was it insufficient to do? He's going to say later on in chapter 9 and, and again in chapter 10 that what it was insufficient to do was to cleanse sinners that they might draw near to God. It could cleanse a man outwardly, but it couldn't cleanse him inwardly. It could cleanse his body, the blood of bulls and goats, but it couldn't cleanse his conscience. In other words, the sacrifices offered under the old covenant genuinely forgave sin, but only to the degree that it kept Israel in the land. So the old covenant was sufficient to keep them in the land, but it was not sufficient to keep them out of hell. For that, they needed a better covenant. And that's why he says now that the new covenant of grace, it is better because it is legally enacted, it is ratified, he says, on better promises. Namely, the perfect obedience in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all according to God's promised covenant of grace across the ages. And so all those old covenant sacrifices were insufficient to cleanse the conscience, but they were sufficient to point to something greater than themselves. And so in this regard, Israel's covenants of promise, beginning with Abraham and, and through Moses and in David, were always subservient to God's covenant of grace first revealed back in Genesis 3. They weren't able to do the work of the Redeemer, but they prepared the way for him. In other words, the old covenant prepared the way for the new covenant. And because the old covenant, that kingdom of Israel produced Christ, the old covenant then produces the new covenant. And that leads us to verses 8 and 9, that is the covenant's preparation. Here the writer establishes the point by quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. Just scan back through it. We've already read it. Notice it because the law is 
powerless to do what the Spirit can do, Israel, at the end of verse 9, did not continue in God's covenant. That's why Jeremiah declared that a new day is coming, future tense. And in that day, God is going to accomplish a redemption that will be kind of like Israel's exodus from Egypt, only a thousand times better. He's going to establish a new covenant with his people. That old covenant, by implication, was never meant to be permanent. It was always preparatory. That in it, God fulfilled earthly promises to Abraham and to David. But in those earthly fulfillments, or those earthly fulfillments were not ultimate fulfillments. Every single one of them, of the providing Abraham with an earthly people and leading them into an earthly promised land, And through Judah, providing them with a king who would then have subsequent sons sitting on a throne. And all of these earthly promises, the covenant of grace did not ultimately find their yes and amen. They all anticipated something greater than themselves. They were future and forward looking. Samuel Renahan helpfully illustrates this point. He says the kingdom of Israel and its covenants were scaffolding around the kingdom of Christ and his covenant. Scaffolding and tarps give a general idea of something being built, but not necessarily a specific idea. They're not the final product, but they do contribute to that final product. He continues, in other words, the kingdom of Israel was one giant coming soon sign concerning the Messiah. That God gave Israel the supreme privilege of being the temporary tenants and the construction workers of the Messiah's kingdom. But the scaffolding, the concept art, the sketches are not needed once the building is completed. And so in this regard, beloved, when we think about the old covenant and the kingdom of Israel, we need to think about the kingdom of Israel as being always preparatory. Jeremiah promised that a future day was coming when a better covenant enacted on better promises would be made between God and his people. And the old covenant eagerly anticipated that. It was not an end to itself. And what the writer to Hebrews is saying in Hebrews 8 is that in Christ, that day has come. He is legally established with his own blood a new covenant based on better promises, revealed step by step in God's covenant of grace across the ages. And these promises, this covenant, includes, as we see here, a new kind of people. A new covenant includes a new kind of people. It says here, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, that after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach or they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. If the old covenant is preparatory, preparing the way, as we just saw, then the kingdom of Israel is now obsolete along with that covenant. Look down there in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, that is the old covenant, those covenants of promise given to Israel, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. It's giving way to its fulfillment. So how then should we understand that phrase in verse 10? 
the house of Israel, if verse 13 is true. The New Testament treats or teaches that there is Israel and then there is Israel. Romans chapter 4. There is an Israel that merely shares Abraham's flesh. But then there is another Israel, a spiritual Israel, offspring of Abraham, who share Abraham's faith. That is God's church. You say, well then, has God abandoned his promises to Israel? The Apostle Paul answers that question. He says, may it never be. Of course not. The kingdom of Israel produced the Messiah just as God promised. The Messiah's entire earthly ministry was spent in Israel. And in this way, the gospel was preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, just as we see in the scriptures. Moreover, as the gospel is preached, a faithful remnant of those who share Abraham's flesh are brought by God's grace to share in Abraham's faith. And many, many more will be brought by God's grace to believe in the Christ before the end of the age, such that they will be grafted together with every saint from every age, from every nation who has received the promised Messiah by faith. That's Hebrews, or Romans chapter 11. But remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's Israel, and then there's Israel. That's why the Apostle Paul at the end of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, in referring to the church united in Christ by faith, free in him, no longer under the yoke of bondage, no longer under the law, in that way, he, said, he calls them, as he closes his letter, the Israel of God. It really is remarkable when you get to the Gospel of John, John 15, Jesus is standing in the shadow of the temple and carved into the side of the temple would be a picture of a vineyard. That vineyard is pointing back to God's image of Israel in the Old Testament, that he planted them like a vineyard. And you remember what the prophet Isaiah said? That when he planted them, what did they produce? He says they produced stinky fruit. They didn't produce good fruit, they produced stinky fruit. And so now you've got in the wake of Isaiah's words in the shadow of the temple, Jesus standing, having already been brought out of Egypt, according to the prophecy in Hosea 2, having already passed through the waters of judgment in his baptism and having already endured the temptations for 40 days in the wilderness, proving himself to be the true Israel, patterning his ministry after Israel's life in history. Now he stands in the shadow of the temple with A mosaic of a vineyard behind him. And what does he say to his disciples? I am the what? Vine. And you are the branches. What is he saying? He's not merely saying life is in me. When you're in me, my life courses to you. Though that's true. He is saying, along with all of his earthly ministry, I am the true Israel such that all who are branches in me are the Israel of God. Though they may not share Abraham's flesh, they share Abraham's faith. And according to Galatians 3, in Christ, they are therefore offspring of Abraham in Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so when he says, I am making my covenant with the house of Israel, he is not neglected Israel. He has not abandoned Israel. He has fulfilled every promise to Israel. 
in Christ, just as he promised. And as he's done so, that different people in Christ, by faith, given new life, justified and sanctified, in all of these ways, we see that the covenant people receive covenant provisions. That in all these verses, verses 10 through 12, God promises to do in the new covenant what the old covenant could never do. The important themes here are union and communion. You can write those down in your notes. Union and communion. Remember, Christ merited our salvation in the covenant of redemption. And in the covenant of grace, the blessings and the benefits of that salvation are now freely bestowed on us in Christ by faith. When you and I were united to Adam... We had no communion with God. Communion with God was broken. Now that we are in Christ by faith, communion with God has been restored such that we not only glorify Him, but are created to enjoy Him forever. Union and communion go hand in hand. And that's the theme implied in all of this. And all of these blessings that are bestowed on us in Christ include regeneration and sanctification. They include justification, adoption and preservation, and ultimately resurrection and glorification. All of these are either explicitly mentioned or they're implied in these couple of verses. Follow along with me. One reason the new covenant is better than the old, first of all, is because it promises to perform an inward work of renewal. You see what God promised there in verse 10? According to the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That in the new covenant, God revives us and he renovates us. Those twin blessings, revival, renovation, are what theologians through the years would call regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration, if we're taking definitions, this is what I mean. Regeneration is the rebirth of a child of God. It is the transfer of us from the kingdom of darkness and death into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's movement from death in Adam to new life in Christ. It is an escape from the covenant of works and its condemnation. And it is an implantation into the covenant of grace where Christ is now our life and our righteousness. That's why the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive together with Christ. He has revived us, but the benefits of the covenant don't end there. Just like when our own children were born and then grew, we who are born again also grow spiritually. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. Only those who've been united to Christ are born again, and only those who are born again grow in the image of Christ. What this means is that with Christ's help, we put to death the sins that once enslaved us. And we freely and we joyfully aim to be holy as God is holy. The Bible compares this work of sanctification to taking off one shirt and putting on another. This is what I have to do when I get done preaching. You don't want to know what happens under here when I'm done. I go home and I got to take one off. And I got to put another fresh one on. The Bible uses that imagery of one that is trashed and another one that is new. And it all speaks to taking off our old selves and of that life and of what it looked like when we were slaves to sin. And now putting on our new selves that is being conformed into the image and the likeness of Christ. That is sanctification. 
But beloved, we need to remember that our sanctification isn't ultimately rooted in what we do. It is rooted in who we know. Not only by union with Christ, the Apostle Paul says that Christ is our sanctification, but also by our communion with God. That as we enjoy the communion with God that has been restored unto us in Christ, we become holy as God is holy. How could we not? As we become imitators of God, Paul says in Ephesians 5. And this is the glorious promise of the new covenant. Verse 11, that every single person who's united to Christ knows God in this way. It's not that only those people in the new covenant knew God. The reason that there's been a covenant of grace through the ages is because saints through the ages, going all the way back to Genesis 3 and Adam and Seth and Noah and others, have known God in this way. It is not merely that some know this way. The, the newness of the new covenant is that Everyone in the covenant community knows God in this way. They all know me. It's a universal knowledge. So, beloved, we may all be at different levels of maturity and understanding. Some of us in here, verse 11, may be counted among the least, and some of us, in terms of our knowledge, might be counted among the greatest, like John O'Brooks. But while we might differ in the quantity of our knowledge, listen to the we cannot differ in the quality of our knowledge. We all know the power of Christ's resurrection. We all know the truth of the gospel. And all of our growth and knowledge then comes from a growth in this most principal reality. The quality of our knowledge in Christ is exactly the same even as all of us grow progressively in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so, beloved, because all of us have been brought by God's grace to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, we then know the very means whereby we are justified. And that leads us to another benefit, a benefit that we find here in the new covenant of grace. Not only are we regenerated and sanctified in Christ, but more than that, we are justified in him. Look at verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That in the new covenant through Christ, God overturns our condemnation in Adam. He takes from us a covenant or a condemned standing in the covenant of works. And he takes us to a righteous standing in his covenant of grace. And this justification brings with it a double-sided benefit. This is one of those sermons where you go, wait a minute, where's all the practical application? I'm not telling you do this. What I'm telling you to do according to the gospel, here's the application. You need to believe this because this is what's true of you in Christ. That's actually most of the application in the scriptures. Hang with me. Our justification in Christ has a two-sided benefit. The forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. On the one hand, God forgives all of our sins. That's what we see here. He's going to remember it no more. Praise God. But forgiveness is only half of justification. In order for you and I to enjoy communion with God, not only do we need our bad record of sins expunged, but we need perfect ledger of obedience. I've shared this illustration with you before, but it's so helpful. Justification can be, can be defined in two ways. Justified, never sinned, that is, forgiveness of sins, my ledger is clean. But secondly, justified, always obeyed God's law perfectly. 
That is what is required to enjoy communion with God forever. That is what was held out to Adam in the covenant of works, and he failed. That is what has now been gained by Christ according to the covenant of redemption and is offered to us in him. The righteousness that we need, not merely forgiveness, but the imputation of law-abiding righteousness that gives us a right standing before the God with whom we enjoy communion. That is justification. And so in Christ, we have both the full forgiveness of sin and perfect righteousness. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that we have been called in Christ our righteousness. It's his righteousness that belongs to us. And so in Christ, we have a new legal standing before God. We also have a new family and we have a heavenly father who loves us. We've not only been justified, but we have been adopted. And as God's adopted sons and daughters, we will be preserved to the end. All of this is implied in the doctrine of justification. It's implied in the language of, of God being our God and us being his people, that we are his household. The apostle John declared that the people of the new covenant the people of Christ, you and me by faith in Christ are the children of God. And we just learned that regeneration is the birth of a child of God, but the fullness of adoption is the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He's called the spirit of adoption. It is through him that we come in and experience all of the benefits of the new covenant of grace in Christ. Well, one such benefit of our adoption, one that you and I fail to appreciate as fully as we should, but one that proves your membership in the covenant of grace is the discipline of your heavenly father. A few chapters over in Hebrews chapter 12, if we had time, we'd go there, but we don't. We learn that the one who is chastened by God, who isn't chastened by God, isn't loved by God. Loved in a covenant way. No discipline from the Father should be thought of less as punishment. And it should be thought of more like training. Training for righteousness, the writer says. That in Christ, we enjoy communion with God as our Father who loves us. And in this life, on this side of the resurrection, our Father blesses us by disciplining us for our good. Wait, what? Let me say it again. Because God, our Father, loves us. Let me put it more personally. Because God, your Father, loves you. He blesses you by disciplining you for your good. Such that if he did not, you would be an orphan in this world, spiritually speaking. It is proof that you belong to him. It is proof of his love for you. Listen to Jeremiah again. What we see here in Hebrews 8 is Jeremiah 31. In the very next chapter, Jeremiah 32, this is what he says as he elaborates on the reality of God's fatherly love and of our adoption into the new covenant of grace. He says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, same covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Now listen to what he says. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why? Here's the reason. That they may not turn from me. 
God's discipline is not condemnation, but it is correction. And it's never done in anger, but it's always done in love. It never seeks to harm you, but is always for your good. It never pushes away, but it always draws in and perseveres. And it is the means whereby he keeps you from turning. It is his means of grace in Christ as a son and a daughter of the Most High to get you safely all the way home to heaven. We need to readjust some of our thinking about the discipline of our Heavenly Father. He does it for our good because he loves us so that he might cause us to persevere. Well, finally, the, the final And perhaps the most glorious promises of the new covenant is that of resurrection and of glorification. You may remember back to our study on the covenant of redemption. We saw there how the servant of Jehovah in Isaiah 53 promised that if he gave his own life for his people, his days would be prolonged. He would see his offspring and he would be exalted. In other words, he's going to die for those whom the Father has given him, only he's not going to stay dead because he's going to see them and his days are going to be prolonged. All whom the Father has given him, he will receive because he ain't going to stay dead. That's the promise of the, of the suffering servant. It promises that in Psalm 16 that his body would never see corruption. The apostles use that psalm, Psalm 16, time and again to show us the power of Christ's resurrection promised in the Old Testament. And you and I need to remember that because Jesus was faithful in the covenant of redemption, he earned for us resurrected, eternal, new creation life. That you and I have been born again, the Bible says, not from below, but from where? From above. And when it says from above, what it's talking about is from where Christ is, from his heavenly session where he brings us to himself and gives us new life by the gospel. That we have been united to the one who died and who, according to Romans 4, was raised for our justification. I want you to listen to this. Jesus promised that he would accomplish his mission, that is the will of his father, to gather a people to be raised up on the last day. He willingly laid down his life, was raised up, and thus earned the right to take, quote, Hebrews 2, many sons to glory. He is then the firstborn among the dead, the one who went to the grave and emerged victorious. He is, quote, life-giving spirit that Adam never was. Through Adam came death, through Christ comes life. We have died and we have been raised spiritually with him in regeneration. And after we die, we will be raised bodily on the last day because we have been united to the one who is the resurrection and the life. All of these new covenant blessings, the supreme blessing will ultimately be communion with God. It will be seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ himself and a consummated new heavens and a new earth. That which all of the promises of God are aiming. And when we consider all of these blessings, we have to remember what gift could be greater than the giver. All of this comes to us in Christ. Such that apart from Christ, if we don't want Christ, we don't get the gifts. But we get to enjoy the gifts because we get the giver. What promise is greater than the promiser? What satisfaction is there in any created thing that could rival or replace the supreme blessing of enjoying the presence of our creator? 
And though every man or woman on earth that makes promises and oaths to you may prove to be promise breakers and oath breakers, unfaithful, our God cannot be unfaithful to you because Christ, he will keep every last one of his promises to you in Christ. You can trust him. You can take every one of those to the grave because you ain't staying there because our Savior didn't stay there. Oh, to be in Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. That's why the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we rejoice. In the end, we rejoice that that first covenant is obsolete. We do not have to come to God as if approaching Sinai. We come to Mount Zion on the basis of Christ's shed blood. We come to Zion with joy and with confidence because the blood of Christ in a new covenant speaks a better word than the word of Abel. It does not speak condemnation over us. It is an everlasting covenant. And though the old is getting ready to vanish away, the new covenant in which you and I have been brought in Christ with all of its blessings and benefits will never vanish away such that we will enjoy all of these things forever in Christ. That is the heart of the new covenant. Let's pray.